iconic meaning fully doesn't mean making money out of it. It's about preserving what I think is an important moment of the culture of today. And if you want to collect meaningfully, you must go in places where people are feeling uncomfortable. I'm feeling very comfortable being uncomfortable. Welcome to Collect Wisely, an ongoing series of podcasts in which we sit down with people who care deeply about art to discuss their passion for collecting. In this episode, we're speaking with Alain Cervais. Based in Belgium, the Cervais family collection features several hundred works from international artists, working in a variety of mediums with one notable distinction. There are no paintings. The collection is housed in a converted factory in Belgium called The Lock. Collect Wisely is an ongoing series of interviews with collectors from around the world in which we question the nature of collecting and connoisseurship in the 21st century and in doing so, hope to inspire a new generation of individuals committed to making a vital and meaningful investment in our common cultural future. Each Collect Wisely episode brings you personal stories from the perspective of an individual collector where we delve into their passion for collecting, what drives them and what inspires them. My name is Sean Kelly, and I've had a gallery in New York since 1991. Welcome, Alain. Thank you for joining us today. It's a great pleasure to have you here. It's a pleasure and an honor to be here. Well, it's really fun to have you. I uh, know you to be a very, very well-informed, educated and opinionated uh, collector no, of contemporary no, art. No artistry background, so it gives me a special position. That, for that's that great. So I've particularly been looking forward to talking to you because I know that you speak eloquently about a number of difficult topics that affect the art world that we all care about. Um, but before we get into that, I wanted to, to go backwards first and uh, ask you, where, where does your, uh, you, you were an investment banker, you come from a family, a very successful family. Uh, were th was your family a family of collectors or? Absolutely not. I, I call myself an auto-generated collector, uh, which is a very surprising uh, event for me. Um, nothing in my family or curriculum ever uh, brought me to art. Um, my first experiences were here in New York. Uh, I was visiting New York um, with my father, who was um, chairman of the Brussels Stock Exchange at the time. And during my days um, uh, alone here at 16 years old, I was going without any reason to the MoMA. Why was I going to the MoMA rather than going shopping? I have no clue. Uh, but I really strongly remember um, the, um, the kind of psychological orgasm I had when I was at the MoMA seeing the Demoiselle d'Avignon and, and the Starry Night of Van Gogh. And suddenly it creates something that I didn't know existed. And after you know, a very active career in, um, in investment banking, slowly I started drifting to that element. And then, like many things in life, it's a series of, ac of accidents. Um, uh, my best friend, when I was playing tennis at the time, um, got hired after um, a back incident um, at a gallery I never heard before called Gagosian. Uh, many time ago, this guy is Christoph van der Weeg. And, um, and we grew up... Who now has his own gallery, very of successfully. Course. Yes, exactly. Um, and it gave me a very interesting opportunity because it was, of course, as you remember, shown uh, 20 years ago, where a very different um, area. <laughs> totally different world. Nobody cared about <laughs> art at all. Um, and so it was a very small uh, group of uh, people with a lot of time and patience and interest and curiosity. So we, um, we spent time, you know, I had the chance of, without collecting, meeting Frank Stella and sitting down with Tony Shafrazi, um, Philip Segalo was a young, young um, advisor at the time and so on. So I got to learn this. I, I learned the functioning of the art markets, the, art, the difference with the art world, and I got deep into passion for art. Um, but interesting because the, the people you're mentioning, who are all great, Philippe and, and Christophe, um, they're, blue tip, they're blue chip dealers and advisors. You are absolutely in different territory. So how did that shift occur from, so you, you come from this sort of patrician background, you know, very- Self-made uh, man, my father was a self-made man. Very educated uh, environment. 
and you are mixing with a group of running with a group of uh, you know young Turks, as it were, in Belgium, many of whom go into the art market and and become su very successful in the secondary and blue chip markets. But you've gone in totally a different direction. Where does that come from? Very soon, I, I understood the difference between uh, what I would call financial art, which is the one that um, you know was drawing interest from some group of people and quite large amount of money and the interest and the attraction I had for contemporary creation. I've always had that, you know. If, if you want to make me run away from a party, start putting um, music from the 1980s and 1990s. I absolutely hate um, nostalgia. Um, if you want to punish me, bring me to um, <laughs> Rolling Stones concerts, uh, or I'm a super fan of Red Zeppelin, but you know, bring me to a Led Zeppelin concert in 2019 and I would be extremely sad and there's a very great chance I will not do. So that's a little bit the, the, the evolution. You know, I love um, contemporary fashion, I love contemporary music, I love contemporary cinema, I love contemporary everything. So it's my nature. So I felt that those guys and friends were going in one direction very successfully, and I admire them for what they did. But I decided to go in another direction, which is about discovering um, new creation with the challenges uh, going with it. But I mean, if, if you have no tolerance for nostalgia or for anything that you know in a certain way, I mean, that indicates not only a huge openness to the unknown, uh, I suppose it's the equivalent of aesthetic risk. It's like you're the person who wants to throw themselves off the aesthetic cliff to see what the journey's like. And that's why I, I talked about auto-generation. It is, it is a series of accidents where my... Um, my breaks, my, my, my failures inside myself were driving me to art in a successful way, in many ways. The curiosity, which can be annoying, that, um, that uh, pleasure to be challenged in uh, many circumstances, um, were fitting very well for the art uh, world in general. So you remember the moment that you were standing in MoMA, which is an institution that is, is held up as really telling uh, the story of the development of, of modern contemporary art in a very particular way, which is now being challenged uh, extensively um, in front of two of the great icons that they own and having this sort of epiphany at the age of 16. What's the artwork that you bought that, that, that prompted an equivalent epiphany? It's interesting. Um, coming, you know, I've been in elite school, uh, heavy pressure, sport guy at, at school and so on. So everything was quite hectic and, and I enjoyed it a lot, you know, adrenaline uh, in many ways. And I realized one thing, going to a museum was bringing me in a state of contemplation and serenity. So that's the key element, is that pleasure of going outside of yourself, of the rhythm of your life and getting into something else. So the first thing I try to do is to, um, to replicate this impression in my uh, own uh, house. And how to better do it than by acquiring the works I saw at the museum. So you said, how is it possible? But you know it, um, of course. And that's why I studied with photography. Because you know, after having seen the Ballad of Sexual Dependency of Nan Goldin at the Whitney Museum, I said, wow. But uh, their edition, so I could acquire a work, and that was uh, Nan Goldin was what, one of my first acquisition. Mm -hmm. After another museum experience, very strong one, um, the second was um, an acquisition of um, Andres Serrano, photography. So I studied with photography uh, because it allowed me to replicate the experience and the quality of what I saw in museums, and that's but, where I started. <clears throat> but there's a there's a real dysfunction between what you've just said and and the objects that you bought, in the sense that you're talking about this experience of serenity in the in in the museum and and quietness, quietude, and calming down, and being in the moment. And then you go and buy a work by Nan Goldin and, and a work by Andres that have, have none of those characteristics. They're, they're abrasive, they're challenging, they're tough, they're brilliant. Uh, and no, there's no nostalgia or comfort in them at all. So, you, you know, how, how does that happen? You, you, you have this experience and then you interpret it, but you filter it and you go in, you go in a totally different direction. I would not say it's a totally different direction because what brought me in that contemplation element 
And it's the same if you look at um, the Starry Night of Van Gogh or the Demoiselle d'Avignon. We cannot say that the subject and the, the artists who were treating them at the time were quite. I'm deeply in love with the um, energy of life, um, you know, the brutality of life. Uh, I'm a, you know, I'm a non-religious person. I believe only in one thing is in nature. I find it absolutely amazing. And as you know, in nature, there is there is um, serenity, calm, but also a lot of brutality. And I'm, I'm in, in love with the kind of chaos um, of, that we find in, 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 uh, in life. And this is what brought me to those works and, and many works afterwards. You've said that um, you were given a piece of advice early on in your collecting career by um, a seasoned collector who told you that uh, when you start collecting contemporary art, the first thing you must let go of is the notion of beauty, because everything that is beautiful is just the accumulated aesthetic. That was a very big revelation, and that's why I'm thanking you again in, in, uh, on behalf of the community for what you do, Sean, with this uh, podcast. Because I had the chance, of, because we're talking about my early experiences, and of course things evolved a lot over the years, because you know, coming from from the MoMA, as you describe it very well, and the kind of um, institutionalized history, I moved a lot from there uh, since then. But it, you need to start somewhere. Sure. And, and in a way, as, as you are leaving the, the expected trail, um, you feel a little bit lonely and uh, fearful uh, in terms of where am I going. And the support of, um, of a more experienced collector, and, and I would call it a mentor, uh, in life in general, whether it's business life or in private life, um, having a mentor is something very important. So, Because at one point where you're hesitating, uh, you're a bit afraid of taking that path, you know, someone pushing you in the back and saying, okay, it's fine, I've been there and I'm, I'm still alive. Um, it was a, a good thing. So this um, mentorship uh, meant a lot. I listened to him in Arco at the time and I approached him afterwards and I said, wow, what you said to me is, is touching something. It helped me to understand that, and that's why, uh, if we speak later about um, painting and other things, is you know I believe in the human nature. There's a deep thrive um, to stop the movement, staying at the same place. When in fact, in my opinion, life is a continuous balanced movement from left to right, and you must, I think, as, as a happy human being accept that movement that will go from happiness, um, uh, sadness and, and so on. So this, um, uh, we, we always, the human want naturally to stay at the same place and, and love the same thing and meet the same people and not drive you outside. <coughs> so when he said me this sentence, he opened a door because I, I understood also intuitively without being able to express it that if we want to do something meaningful and open and get something interesting from the art, one needed to go in an uncomfortable zone. And a lot of the art that I was seeing was referring to something that existed before. You know, there are, today at the Amory, some paintings that are looking like a little bit like a Monet, or a Matisse, or, um, or a Picasso. Uh, and it's the one that are attracting the easiest, the normal people. There's, there's a really interesting point there I'd like to pick up on, because <clears throat> I totally agree with you. And I think that one of the things that's that's amazing about uh, about the human aesthetic that's developed is that it is remarkably consistent throughout time the things that define us as human beings uh you know that would have that we would have we could identify in in an egyptian uh 4000 years ago are very similar to the same aesthetic impulses that we ourselves would feel but one of those is beauty and it's the one that you in a way have focused on in the collection and in your life and in your comments about challenging. Um, and what's interesting to me about that is that we normally rely upon our artists to challenge notions of beauty aesthetically. We don't re normally rely on collectors to challenge our notions of beauty aesthetically. But you have really zeroed in on that as something that you're very committed to doing and being sort of fearless about buying very challenging works, committing to buying artists when they're young, um, having a very large collection in, in, in Belgium that is curated each, the, each year and, and really challenges a lot of these norms and aesthetics. Uh, and you really, you know, you're really out there on a, on a limb doing that. Um, and I wonder if, if, do you not 
you know, you're not fearful of that? And is there no sense of beauty in the decision-making process for you? But beauty is, is subjective, and uh, that's very important. The definition you gave about it, and that Herman Dallet gave at the time, is the acquired aesthetic. I found it very interesting, again, being having no basis of art history at all. I had to learn everything um, on, on, the, on the move. I've, and I made really an effort to go and visit um, the, the exhibition of Das Bruck, for example, for the 19... Um, 10, mm -hmm. 20 uh, movements um, of painting in Germany. And I could really, understanding what was shown at the time, I could understand how shocking um, those artists were. Um, the same with um, Warhol, you know, in 1960, at the end of the 1960s, um, uh, producing what he was, it was shocking. So what I found interesting is that this aesthetic, which was shocking at the time, is now totally absorbed in our taste. So I realized that what I needed to do if I wanted to collect meaningfully, I collect meaningfully doesn't mean making money out of it. It's about preserving what I think is an important moment of, um, of the culture of today. Um, and so if you want to collect meaningfully, you must go in places where people are feeling uncomfortable. And this is what I said earlier, I'm feeling very comfortable being uncomfortable. Uh, and that's the key um, weakness of dysfunction in my personality, uh, which is finding a good um, result in the art world. There's also a very interesting rupture here again, because I, th I love all these contradictions that you, 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 you seem to be a bundle of contradictions that work in a perfectly balanced way, if I may suggest that. Um, and one of, the, one of the particular ones that I love is that you come from this sort of storied banking uh, background, uh, and yet, you know, you know, I would have expected you, like Christophe and, and Philippe, to be very focused on the blue chip and, and uh, uh, you know, and value. And yet here you are, um, no paintings in the collection, which is normally considered to be the main carrier of value culturally uh, in contemporary sense, uh, and buying very cutting edge works that in many cases, uh, you know, maybe value less. Yeah. How, how, does, how, how, how do you reconcile those two aspects um, of your character? First of all, um, finance, contra contrary to what many people think from outside, is not only about making one plus one dollar become three. It's not a kind of chemical, magical product from that point of view. It's about also understanding the society as a whole. Can you predict the evolution of the retail industry? Can you understand the impact that um, iPhone will have on the future of communication and, and, and so on? Um, what about the generic um, uh, medications on the impact on the, um, on the health care system and so on? So if in the financial world you are staying with the crowd, you guarantee to lose your shirt. The only way to go is to take some risk and to think outside of the box. And that's where I found, um, you know, convergence between the art world and the financial world. Then about the money. Um, it's very simple. As I said earlier, um, the art world was not anything else than a, a source of pleasure and, and serenity. I didn't want to introduce money in the, in the game. Because otherwise, what is different with my job? I want to create a haven where I can think and maybe grow up uh, in some ways. And art helped me a lot. And it helped me because I refused to try to make money out of it. As you know, as a good collector, by accident, you make money out of it. <laughs> because you end up choosing the right pieces and... And sometimes, you, you know, it's surprising the pieces that, that do increase exponentially in value. You know, and it's, it's not that easy to predict many times. I bought uh, Rashid Johnson from Nicole Klagsburn. I bought Michael and Thomas from Rona Hoffman. I bought Ian Cheng from a gallery, non-existing gallery. Um, I don't mind really that the price increased. I'm sometimes bothered. Um, I'll be honest, I was bothered when... Rashid moved to Hauser and Wirth because then we're getting in another league, um, um, which can lead to overproduction. And let's not forget that value can also decrease. 
again, I'm not... Markets are cyclical. I'm not thinking in those terms. Um, also, to be honest, because I think I'm pretty good at what I'm doing in the financial world. And it's easier um, to, uh, to make serious money in the, um, in the uh, financial world than in the art world, where there are major impediments. Um, as you know, a lot of um, collectors sometimes go around the fair like Armory with their little notebook saying, oh, the price of this work I bought last year uh, doubled in price, but it doubled in price only on the offer price. If you need to sell them, maybe it's selling for yeah. still half the price of yeah. what you bought for it. Yeah. So it, there's a lot of illusion in, um, in the, the value uh, of art in many ways. So I'm not counting on it, and that's why I... I do, do you, you seem to understand the relationship between the world you came from, the financial world, and the art world that you've gravitated towards as an impassioned collector um, in a very conceptual way, um, which, which is fascinating. And I'd like to ask you a very specific question about this. Um, Belgium, is a t Belgium is a tiny, tiny country that has an exponential uh, impact on, on the art world both in terms of the quality of the collectors that it has generated, the quality of the artists it's generated, um, and its, it, its focus on conceptual practice. Um, and there are extraordinary collectors and collections and artists in Belgium that have come out of Belgium that have been very, very uh, adventurous and on the leading edge of supporting conceptual art practices. Um, how important for you as a young person growing up in Belgium, was it to have access to those collectors and those collections where you were able to see conceptual work by Europeans and Americans, very cutting edge Americans who were accepted far earlier in Belgium than they were in America. Bruce Nauman, Joseph Kassuth, Lawrence Wiener, um, art and language, etc., etc. I mean, you would see those, uh, you'd see those artists in collections in Belgium on a regular basis that you wouldn't see anywhere else. I am um, uh, a fan of history. Uh, I think that we understand the world much better by knowing history, but the real one, not the invented one. So um, there are two elements in your uh, question about the, the recent movement. And you're right, my mentor, Eman Daled, uh, happened to have sold his collection to the MoMA, conceptual <coughs> art, including all the, um, the, the letters and exchange with the artists. As you know, it was very frequent at the time. Mm -hmm. And he told me one day, you know why all those guys were present in Belgium? Because at the time, uh, any of those artists flying to Europe which was choosing the discount airports. It was cheaper to fly. <laughs> it was cheaper to fly into Europe through Belgium and Brussels than to from Paris or Amsterdam. And those guys, and he remembers, you know. Um, uh, Carl Andre or Solewitz were spending the night because you know, they were flying in and uh, they had to take the train the following day. It was not that easy as today. And um, they were staying over to that guy in Brussels. Right. And of course, he was giving the tip to his friends, which means that the next guy coming uh, would stay at this place. And eventually they created, as you know, also the, we're talking now about uh, 40 years or 50 years. A network. Years. They were creating a network by the fact that it was the discount airports. And we keep forgetting those um, elements. A second um, thing, which is a deeper about the Belgian collectors, is that we have to remember that we are not a nation uh, in the sense that we have no historical identity. We've been artificially created by the Allied after the Napoleonic Wars in, 19, in 1830. And it was an artificial construction, taking a little bit of land from Holland, from the Spanish, and a little bit of land of the French. We put it together. Um, but I keep being fascinated by something which would be unbelievable in the US, is that our um, in-charge um, uh, prime minister was asked one day at the national day to sing the Belgian national anthem. And on television, he sang the French one. Confused. <laughs> I'm not lying. Uh, you can you can find it on <clears throat> on uh, YouTube. I still show it to my uh, foreign friends to that they understand what we mean by non uh, non nation. And I think it's very important to to understand that because I found that the weakness of the the British collectors and the French collectors is that they have Le Louvre and the British Museum. They refer their history and everything that they know from that very famous history. And they have much more difficulty opening up to something which is totally new. 
So this, I think that one of the reasons must be found in history in that kind of a very strong concentration of contemporary art collectors is that we are happy to be different. And so what you're really saying is that there's a real value to being stateless and you can think differently. Uh, and that, the, the, you know, this, this environment in Belgium created uh, a, a generation of collectors who were unafraid to accept the new and the conceptual because effectively they were emotionally stateless in the art world. And I think that's absolutely true. The other point which is fascinating is uh, sort of going back to something that I referred to briefly earlier, I'd really like to talk to you about, is this notion of the official canon of the art world. And MoMA traditionally, of course, was the institution that we all looked to to tell the story of art after the war um, and to tell the story of American modernism and the story effectively from the 1930s to the end of the 20th century and beyond. Um, that is really being challenged right now. There are, we had a decade of looking at brick, you know, uh, Brazil, Russia, India, China, uh, those countries coming to more prominence and people looking at them. And now we've got another wave of people looking um, at uh, overlooked communities. So um, artists of color, ethnic communities around the world, uh, women artists who've been hugely disadvantaged, not only by uh, museums, dealers, ma the market, etc. It seems there's a great sort of roiling change occurring right now. How is that going to affect the story that that gets told, do you think, through the institutions? It's changing. As, as you mentioned, I, I, I got my first art impression at the MoMA and I'm still thank, thankful to them. Um, we had the chance um, to go around the collection uh, at the occasion of the um, Armory um, party. Uh, the collection was open. It was interesting to have a, another look at what the way it's evolving. And then you have exhibition like the Ilma Afklimt uh, at, uh, at the Guggenheim, which is opening up kind of another way of thinking. And then to sum up exactly what you said, I acquired a work um, at Arcov by um, a Colombian artist called Oscar Santillan, and it's called 1000 Years of Nonlinear History. And it's a very simple kind of, uh, kind of a big net on the wall but every element of the net is one thread that he took out of fabrics that he was picking up anywhere in the world um, from the last 1,000 years to today. And he was knitting them together, but of course as a net is going in a very different direction. So definitely one of the, um, the key questions I'm asking myself before acquiring any work is, is a quite simple way, but quite efficient. Do I stand a chance that anyone will want to look at this work in 30 years' time. Not next year, we're talking about 30 years down the road. That's the question I really ask myself every time I'm acquiring a work. And definitely this um, redrawing of, of, of history is a very important historical moment. Yep. Other elements um, that are important in the collection as well is... Um, is um, uh, the digital art. Digital art is a, also an important part. I've been collecting it for, for 15 years. There's an amazing exhibition by Rhizome at the New Museum. Rhizome, which is for me an absolutely essential institution in the, in the art world today. But I always try to place myself in 2200, where I hope I'm going to still be alive with my third body that I will <laughs> have exchanged. I love science fiction as well. Um, and I will look at the history books of my grand-grand-grand-grandchildren and they will speak about the year 2000. And what will define the year 2000? You've been collecting for about 20 years yeah. now. Uh, and your, your benchmark is a 30-year uh, window. You want to know what things look like in 30 years. You're two-thirds of the way there. How are your acquisitions from 20 years ago looking to you right now? They were, they're improving. Uh, I, like I often say, um, start collecting with little money because you're going to make mistakes. So take your time. And I love those mistakes. I'm not... Uh, so you embrace the mistakes? I, of course. Um, you learn by mistakes. Have you no. ever sold anything that you've bought? Very rarely. I mean, the collection is a few hundred, as you said. I maybe sold 15 works on, the, on those 20 years uh, and as a whole. Why did you sell them? Because you'd fallen out of love or you... There were doubles. Um, okay. You know, I, I acquired Gadda Amer early on, but I could not get a large um, uh, 
painting or whatever they call it. Um, and so when I got one, I, I sold this one. Um, Hans Bellmer, the same. Originally, I bought single work and then I bought the whole book. So it was making more sense. So it's editing rather than selling. It's editing. And one case was I had a, a wonderful um, Gerhard Richter from 1966. Um, I, I'm in love with very early works of artists. Um, I was reminded that at the Warhol exhibition, where two thirds of the exhibition is from works from 1962 to 1964. All the rest is considered like set. immature works. Um, and always he said it's a repetition. Yeah. And, yeah. and if you look at the, the work of Gerhard Richter, everything has been said in 1966. So this 1966 Farben was something exceptional that I fell in love with and I acquired, which is contrary to what I do. But as you said, I love to live in contradiction sometimes um, and not to be stuck to the same place. But it grew in, in value so much that I, uh, I said, you know, it's not nice anymore, you know, to be careful with the, um, the, the weather condition, the, the light, um, moving it is, is difficult. It's a, it's a difficult world to maintain. So I prefer to, um, to sell it out right. in those cases. Why no painting? I mean, it seems like a prejudice. Yes, um, it's a prejudice. and It's a little bit a, a provocative um, way of drawing attention to one thing. We forget that um, the art world as a whole is a microcosm of the society at large. And we cannot, and I don't want to ignore, that we, we're in a very hard class struggle. In society, I let you identify it. But in the art world, it's quite simple. And I would be a little bit caricatural, but why not? You have artists which are um, trying to question the status quo, the system as it is right now, questioning, salute, you know, identifying uh, inequalities, um, dangers, threats to, uh, to society as a whole, criticism of the, um, of, the, um, of the status quo. And for their living, they depend on members of the establishments in charge of maintaining that status quo. So we always have that kind of opposition and we feel it very strongly um, uh, continuously because uh, you know but at the end of the day unfortunately in the society we're living in money rules so what the dominating class uh, wants is painting I don't know why Barbara Kruger said it very well one day she said why is it that any trace of painting on the canvas is considered art when what I'm doing on those, on those plastic, um, uh, um, plastic uh, pieces, I have to justify it is not advertising and it is art. And many, many different elements like uh, installations or videos, uh, is it art in many ways? But never anyone questioned that element. And you're right, what you mentioned earlier is that it's considered the best store of value um, for... So there's definitely from that emerging class of collectors and that's very often a longer lasting um, class of collectors is a, there's an, a focus on painting and I feel that um, there is unfortunately and it, I, it has been verified by my discussion with artists that the pressure on artists to produce what the market wants to survive is very strong mm -hmm. so I decided okay if I've got to make a little difference in all this is I'll be supporting those medium that nobody really wants and I can guarantee that very often people don't want them um, because I take my time for buying. Sometimes I come back, I know I test the, the, the time on this. I, I wait three months, six months, nine months to come back to work. And in 80% or 90% of the time, uh, they're still available. So either I'm a very, very bad collector with very bad <laughs> taste because I want what nobody wants, or maybe I am really um, filling up that gap of trying to support um, medium and artists that are not in the, in the light. Well, I think I would argue that you're a more cutting edge collector and that those things uh, take uh, longer for us to absorb culturally. I mean, Leo Castelli, who I knew and worked with, um, told me that the thing, you know, that very often at the end of his shows, the best works would, he, he ended up with his collection and Ileana Sonnenman ended up with her collection because the, uh, very often the most challenging, the most difficult works were not bought and at the end of the shows they remained with the dealer. Um, and uh, I think that's a very good matrix for ending up with an ex 
spectacular and world-shattering collection. So I, 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 keep, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't question your judgment. <laughs> but I, I keep going a lot to museums. You know, when I'm coming to New York for the Armory Week, I will see every single museum that there is in, in the city, um, from the Bronx Museum, where there is a, a Peter Campus exhibition of video, it's very, very cutting edge. To Rachel Bender at the, at the Red Bull Art Center, which is very revealing to me from the 1980s. So, and what I realize is every single time is what you said: the art going in the museum are the one that is um, the most um, consumable. No, 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 harder. No, ah. no, no, the most demanding. Really, no. you think so? Going in museums into collections sure. or being exhibited. Being exhibited. Ah, that's it. Yeah, so okay. one exhibited. I thought museum. you meant going into permanent collections. No, 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 no. Going into into uh, into museum exhibition are the mm. ones that are the most demanding. Mm -hmm. For ex I give you an example. For ex among others, you know, I have friends who are interested in land golding, but then they're buying a, a landscape of land golding, and I said to them, you know, either you take her drug friends, either you don't do it. If you cannot live with the yeah. drug friends uh, with a needle in their in their arm, don't do it. And, and that's yes, she's not exactly known for her landscapes. Exactly, and that's very important to understand. If you like an artist, go, go for the strongest work. And I remember that lesson that even Christoph gave me at the time uh, from that kind of in investment point of view. I mean, if you want it to last, take the strongest work uh, you, can, yeah. you can do. The consequence of that is quite interesting, is that, um, I, as you mentioned, the, the space is open to the public to visit. And I've got those remarks quite often of, banks, of people coming to me and saying, you know, we really love your collection, but we could never live with it. Well, and you have young daughters. Um, and has there ever been works that you've acquired where you just felt, I really can't have these, I can't have my kids around these works. They're just too difficult. It's too challenging. It's too complicated for have, to have them live with this. I maybe have been a bad father for thinking so, but I always thought I could explain to them uh, because it was never going into provocation um, or access for the pleasure of access. So yes, they've been exposed to anything. Children are also very different. Is How are they doing? Is uh, are the uh, psych psychiatric bills mounting up or are they okay? No, I think they're okay. <laughs> I, as you know, as a, as a Father yourself, you see the difference that um, either they become like you or they become exactly the contrary of you. So yeah. from that point of view, they become a little bit contrary of me uh, in terms of um, of um, there's sometimes a bit of shame of their father, which is making a bit too much noise, <laughs> being a little bit too different. Um, but uh, for kids, it's another story. I remember very well the case where uh, we had a, a birthday party at home. They were already like 11, 12 years old, and we, we had a a photography of history of sex of uh, Andres Serrano on the wall. And a friend of theirs came to them and said, hey, did you see there's a, there's a little penis here, there's a little penis. And then my daughter came to me when this thing has been on the wall for over a year. And she said, daddy, 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 there's a penis here. They never saw it because they were not looking. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's very strange yeah. uh, how kids in a way... No, it's the fabric of the environment they're growing up in. Exactly. So. Maybe for better or worse, and we'll see uh, with the psychiatric bills if it goes or not. <laughs> um, but uh, and it's then opening up the discussion about um, the uh, the legacy of collector vis-à-vis -vis their family. Yeah. I'm also fascinated by. Are they interested in collecting? They're not interested, uh, and I realize that it happens a lot in many families. I was visiting a, a New York collector here in New York um, on uh, Upper West and. Um, I, I met the son and I said, how do you feel? And, you know, I, I, I believe that like being an artist, being um, kind of a dedicated, passionate collector is, is a kind of um, addiction and a disease. And it's not uh, transmitted to your family and your children automatically. It yeah, can. I think, uh, you know, somebody's, uh, somebody, I mean, there have been many occasions on which, of course, people have made the Freudian slip and instead of calling me an art dealer have described me as a pusher. Um, but I, I, I think that's, uh, I, I'm not entirely offended by that. I think that's quite apposite. I mean, because as a collector, I know what that need feels like, too. So, I mean, I think a good, a good it's, it's prerequisite for a good dealer to be a pusher in a certain way, but they have to feed their own addiction as well as others. Yeah, and I, I love that um, comparison I made as well, observing why 
um, approximately 10% of the, of the works that will be um, agreed to sell at the Armory, for example, this week will not be paid. You know, people will withdraw. Uh, as, as, as you know better than me, um, it happens quite regularly. And I'm always amazed coming from the financial and the, you know, the, the, the business world. I'm saying, why are those dealers not um, uh, suing those guys? Because when I buy a washing machine and I go to Costco and I, I you know, I sign a bond, and if I don't buy yeah, it, the guy will it, yeah. say. Yeah. And I, I, I th thought in a funny way, in caricature way, that you know, they they realize that their clients are addicted, and the dealers realize that they better not kill their clients, otherwise they will not come back. <laughs> <laughs> Overload them. No, we are we are drug addicts uh, in some way. So yes, it is. Um, uh, the responsibility of the dealer, the pusher, as you mentioned, to keep us alive. One of the things I specifically wanted to ask you about is you, you I think that you've got a really good balance, uh, a sense of, I think you, you actually have a very healthy sense of humor and that you're, you have a very bright and lively intelligence. Uh, but you are somebody who likes to, not court controversy, but you are somebody who likes to have uh, as we would say in argy-bargy, a back and forth about ideas. And you have used very contemporary media to do that. You're very active on Twitter. You have a lot of people following you, paying attention to what you say. There have been occasions when there's been some back and forth with different individuals. How do you feel, aside from that, and God knows we rue the fact that the president ever discovered Twitter, but aside from that, um, how, how do you feel that media is either facilitating or changing the way that you function as a collector, both in terms of knowing about things and um, uh, seeing things, but also the speed at which, in a way, decision-making is being dictated now? First, um, it's important to remember that my founding myth is the myth of the cave by Plato. Uh, I think it's very important because it's, it's an element which is driving a lot of, of my life. And the myth of Plato, Plato was a, a follower of Socrates. Socrates was saying, there's only one thing I know is I don't know. And he was trying to elevate the level of knowledge by asking questions to people. Just asking questions. Why you think this? Why are you doing that? Uh, you confirming and people give answer and they say, but why are you doing this? And so on, always, always going further. So. My bad habit is asking questions. I'm, uh, I'm quite feared sometimes by panelists because I'm going to ask questions. Um, and I'm also ready to take questions, like I do of yours, and I really like them. Um, so that question, that's one element. Uh, the, the controversy is never um, personal. It's about um, testing who you are. And I really, really respect someone which is giving me um, um, an Ch answer. Challenges. No, no, give me an answer as well, you know, and, and from that point of view, any kind of feel of, because my question could seem aggressive, but they are, they are not. And if you answer them with a good reason, for example, you're mentioning exchange, there was a very interesting exchange with Alexander Forbes, from the chief editor of Artsy, uh, yesterday and today about um, the art market report, the Clark McKendrick art market report. He made some interesting remarks to me that could be um, resented as, as aggressive and I replied to him in some way that could appear to some aggressive because people are not used of you telling the truth anymore. Yeah. That's also yeah. one of the problems. No, that's absolutely true. You know, they are flattering and they, the fact that you say, oh, okay, um, what about this? Do you think this and so on? They, they're sometimes feeling that it's rude to ask the, the right question. Well, I think that the, the, the art world, which is, uh, you know, in many respects, a quite secretive place that's, that, that, that guards its secrets and guards information very closely. Um, there, there, I don't think there's a conspiracy of silence, but it could be perceived that there's a conspiracy of silence. And I think when one speaks out about that in an honest way, most people applaud it. Um, uh, but a lot of art world insiders decry it. Of course, and that's the, that's the case. So, to to answer your initial question, um, asking question is is never aggressive. The social media allow to do it in a different way. So that I can do it from my bed without uh, spending too much time in um, in social cocktail and or dinners, which is quite um, annoying to me. Um, and so the social media allow to have a more 
informed discussion because very often I refer to articles, someone who said it better than me or research that did it, that it, did it better than me. And if the exchange is respectful, and I always try, and if I don't, um, please uh, ask people to, uh, to draw my attention to it. I always try to answer in a, in a polite way. The social media, has the best thing and the worst thing is that sometimes, and I take the example of my um, dear friend and respected um, art critic Jerry Soltz, um, is that Jerry is a wonderful man. In person, we are amazing. Uh, I, we have an amazing respect for each other, but sometimes I don't like what the persona he has on social media. I don't know why this devil is coming out of this body in many ways. So, um, But do, do you not think that Jerry, in a way, is using it in the same way that you might use it on occasion maybe, to be provocative? Maybe. I would say sometimes the words you use are a little bit too brutal and I'm trying to, to stop before, before that level. But this, that's, that's a point I really wanted to get to in, in, part, in, in this part of, of, of thinking. And it is, it is important about the art world. Um, you know, if, if I'm upset by something, I, I sort of have a rather old-fashioned view of it. And I, I, I'm not on Twitter, and I think e email is even too fast. Um, but, you know, there would have been a time when one had to sit down and write a letter, and the, the very speed at which you had to write the letter would have dictated that one's brain thought differently, and it slows you down. Now, it's so fast... If I'm upset about something, I write an email and I don't send it for two days. I let it sink in and I very often decide at the end of the process that I won't send that email because the problem will solve itself in some way. But in an age where we can literally respond immediately on Twitter, aren't we all making lots of horrible mistakes very quickly? Suddenly, and I apply the same rules as you do, uh, not maybe a couple of days, but a couple of hours. And I try not to answer too fast because it's there that you make mistakes. I would nevertheless recommend you to send the letter, um, not in the way that you wrote it two hours and after, but maybe um, rephrasing it in another way, because I'm sure that your reaction is justified, and in, it would help maybe, maybe I your counterpart. It to myself. <laughs> and it would be helpful to your counterpart to draw attention to what you have to say. Um, that contradiction again, uh, the Socratic contradiction from that point of view. It's, I think it's important, and you're totally right. One thing that's bothering me a lot in the art world is that we're talking about humanism. Uh, we're talking about you know the the highest level of um, of the human um, mind and soul and heart. And very often we behave in a very secretive, closer to a mafia type of, of attitude where... You've talked about previously about Ameta, sure. the, the mafia oath uh, operating in the art world. I'm amazed by the difference of language in face-to-face um, -face discussion and what you can read in the, in the, in the media. Yeah. Uh, we all know, you know it, I know it, that um, the truth is never in the media, even less in those stupid movies that are made or the stupid um, uh, documentaries, that uh, the, the one that has been done recently, where we always focus on money, we yeah. always show the auction house things and the multi-million things, and we find a, uh, a collector, you know, boasting about his uh, Excel sheet of things like this. I mean, this is not the truth. Um, there is a much deeper truth, and I haven't found yet um, anyone that has written the truth about it. I, I wanted to, you know, move from Twitter to Instagram for a second. Do you think that the speed at which we're accessing visual information now is affecting the way that we think and, and the decision-making process with regard to collecting? I'm an active um, user of Twitter. I have no Instagram account. Oh, that's very interesting. Why not? Did you have one and you gave it up? or I never had one. You never had one. I don't have one either. Um, Welcome in and, the I'm, club. and I'm very interested. And, and now I know a lot of people who are, who are actually giving it up. Um, why, why, is, why have you not had one? Because that would be an, a, an easy way for people to give you lots of information about things that they want you to buy all over the world constantly. I, for, when people ask me the usual question when I sit down at any table and people hear I'm a collector, the first question is, what are you collecting? Um, my answer is, I'm collecting IDs. Ideas, because my, my girlfriend keeps saying that I pronounce ideas very badly. Um, so ideas. Um, I think Twitter is a place where you can exchange ideas. You can exchange, unfortunately, insults as well, and trade insults. I'm trying not to do it. Um, but I'm really trying to, to bring attention to many elements of ideas. Um, Instagram, even if you can add some text, but nobody is really reading the text, um, is about image. 
And for me, a work of art is never only about the, the look of it. Um, so also, I'm really extremely irritated by the kind of image of, uh, that everybody is projecting on, on Instagram, which is always the kind of image that you see on, on, um, on advertising. You know, your hair is always perfect and your, your, your look is perfect and you will change it, transform, transform it even with the, the, the technological media possibility. So even if it's kind of interesting to know what people are doing, what, uh, whatever they're seeing, I'm also totally unable, totally unable to buy a work only based on, a, on, a, on an image, on a PDF or anything else. I mean, I get 150 um, pre-fairs um, uh, yeah, PDF previous, yeah. and I'm not even looking at one because it's spoiling my pleasure. I'll stop sending them. Good. <laughs> but it, de it, depends, it depends on the clients. But if I'm going there and if I'm looking for one um, artist, then I would ask you to keep me posted about what's coming on. But Sometimes I've got the impression of going on the booth and I said, I've, I've seen that somewhere, but I saw it on, an, on a PDF. So but, it, but it's super interesting because your response about that is completely consistent with your much more conceptual approach, which is, I think, very much condi conditioned by, you know, the conceptual approach in Belgium um, to, to thinking about art, which is, if, if there is no content, then it is just an image. And, and that is what Instagram can show you. It can only show you the image. It can't, it can't inform you of the content. So it's actually very logical that you wouldn't have an Instagram account because uh, it's not going to help you at all. Thank you for finding something not contradictory in my personality. No, no, I think, it, I, I, of the, the I think it's, no, no, a, right. it's amazingly consistent. Yes, and I'd be even more consistent in one thing. You're using the word conceptual. Um, I'm always extremely scared, you know, my background is also Latin Greek, I studied Latin Greek, so the sense of words is very important. And I know how much um, many, many words are overused and, and, and becoming tags. So when you think about conceptual, people think about solewit or, you know, the very dark and heavy conceptualism uh, that we've seen in the 70s and, and 90s, the same way as you use the term political art or in tagging it in a way which is someone screaming on your wall in many, many ways. So I'm very careful with that. Use, you, you, you use it better when you said it's about ideas. Conceptual doesn't mean about uh, ideas and vice versa. So it's very important to know the difference because sometimes it can be something which is very emotional which when conceptual appears. So I'm very, very careful in, in the use of words. And one of my, my specificities is always, I refuse to be put in a box in anything. So if you think that you put me in a box of conceptual, I will jump into something which is totally different. And some of my friends sometimes say, Alain, you keep surprising me. Why did you buy this thing? And I said, because I wanted to, you know, trouble the people that are trying to put me in I, kind I, of brutal, violent uh, <laughs> things, and then I do something extremely soft. I feel like I've let you down because I've actually put you in the consistency box. Mm, I'm, I'm trying. I mean, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm challenging myself. Um, Although I think if you look at the collection, and I hope everybody's listening to, to the podcast, will look at the collection, it would be really challenging to think of the collection as having uh, an aesthetic, and I don't want to use that word, or a conceptual consistency, because I think it is incredibly diverse and challenging. One other exercise I, I impose myself about, you, I mentioned about questioning everything I do. Another way I'm questioning it is by requiring that and outside curators um, make the rehanging every year. We rehang the collection every year. And I bring an outside curator ready to spend some time trying to understand the collection, the inner logic of it. But then I have no intervention whatsoever, not even looking at the pre-PDF and the guy or the girl will be um, installing the whole, the whole um, collection. It's a very interesting exercise because it kind of challenged whether I did a good job. Mm. Because is it consistent? Is it working together? Is it a mix of, 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 of different elements that are, have no, no, no consistency and no logic? How many different uh, curators have you had come in and intervene in the collection? Now it's approximately seven years. Wow. I never hung myself. I think I'm not a good exhibition maker. So I never and has tried. And has it been incredibly refreshing and surprising? I thanked them 100 times. 
Why? Because they're giving me my collection back a second time. And you're seeing it totally differently. That's fantastic. Yeah. That they're giving it to me again. Yeah. Because they're bringing out words that I would not have brought out. They're putting them in a context I would not have thought. And that's, we come back to what we said initially, you know, the beauty and the excitement that I have from art is about discovering um, parts of myself I didn't know. And, and to be honest, and we, I think we're getting close to the, um, to the conclusion, is that when people ask me, what about the legacy? I said, I really don't mind at all what will happen. Either my daughters have any, develop any interest of it, or they sell it, and there will be, as in every collection, as you know, the last 30% or 40% that will have no other exit than being put on the sidewalk, mm. because nobody will care for them. Right. Um, and I, I can live with that. Um, and um, me, what I will bring in the, in, the, um, in the grave will be all the experiences yeah. that I had with yeah. art. And I think that's why I, I say that art collecting is more than collecting objects. It's about a way of living. And that's very important for me when I must um, recognize a collector or non-collector. I mean, are you able to have that kind of dialogue that we have, you know, in, challenging, but uh, respectful in some way, so the, the desire. It, it's as much about the richness of the journey as it is about the artifacts collected on the way. I really have, and most of the collectors I, I meet, particularly the ones that are starting opening up their collection, I always say, you know that this is showing your collection is the end of your collecting? Because very often you're going to get so much satisfaction from the sharing that in a way, you so don't, you don't have that same. So there isn't a museum uh, in, of your collection in the future for you because it would become, in a way, a mausoleum for you. Exactly. Yeah. And my, my father, for example, was extremely surprised because he thinks, "Wow, the energy that you put in there, the hang, uh, you don't want it to impose to your daughter to take care of that." I say, "Please, not. Yeah. Why would it's I want huge, to bother them?" It's a huge pressure. Why would I want to bother <clears throat> them with this? I mean, Actually, I've spoken to a number of of, of collectors who have recently made the decision to 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 close their um their bricks and mortar uh and to donate to other institutions because the 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 weight of looking after the collection is is not what they're excited by and if they are they can do it yeah, if yeah, they absolutely. don't and if they prefer to go and taking care of animals or helping people out in um in the in, in other part of the world Let's do that, or take yeah. care of their family, or whatever they want to develop. And I, I don't want to bother them with my old uh, passions. So, so yes, art is about is a way of living, and it's very important. You know, it's those silly details where we're laughing. You know, Eva and I, who I really thank a lot for um, having the courage to take a guy like me on. And this is what I mean by art as a as a way of living, is that you keep going and it keeps you alive. And I admire my friend at 70 years old, 80 years old, that is are still on the road. Um, uh, you know, the, um, the Dick Trow here in, in New York or, or, or Beth the Woody that we see everywhere in the yeah. world, the Ustra Klinsinger that is running around Barbara, the world of Asia. Barbara Levine in, in Washington. I mean, you know, more energy than anybody I know. I'm thanking art again to maybe make yeah. my life longer. Yeah. Because if I lose that passion, Maybe I'll yeah. become a mummy. So this conversation could go on forever. It's been incredibly fun to have, have you on and, and, and hear you uh, thinking about the collection in real time. Um, but uh, I don't want you to be in a mausoleum and I don't want you to be a mummy, but I do want now to return you to your platonic cave. And um, I always have one question for everybody that we sit down with, and that is if there was one artwork you could live with for eternity um, and you have to make one choice, it's a very tough call. We're not going to put you in a white box. We're going to put you back in the platonic cave and you will have some light. But what would that one artwork be that would sustain you throughout eternity? For its, for its eternity, and even it has been chosen, I think, by um, Tiffany Zabludovic, would be the Jérôme Bosch um, uh, Garden of Delis. Because it's opening up so many things. You know, right. It's touching the human nature. For me, it's touching the human nature of the good and the bad. You know, I, one, another one of my, the words I keep in my mind every time is that in every good, there is bad. And in every bad, there is good. Uh, meaning that 
uh, I'm exaggerating many things, but it's got good good sides. And but my good sides, I've got very negative sides as well in whatever I do, and it's happened with a lot of people. So I really like that that contrast that is made in such an unbelievably original, imaginative way, which would still fit perfectly well in a Blade Runner 2098. Well, Hieronymus Bosch is definitely winning the race at the moment with you and Tiffany voting for it. And Alan, it's been an incredible pleasure to have you on Collect Wisely. It's been, it's been uh, illuminating and challenging and fun. And I really want to thank you for coming and sharing your thoughts. It's been a great pleasure to have you. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Collect Wisely can be found on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Overcast, and Google Play. You can also find our episodes on our YouTube page. Just search Sean Kelly Gallery. Please be sure to subscribe to get the freshest episodes when they release. And if you really like the show, please give us a review or drop a comment. Or you can email us at info at sky.com. You can also follow the Sean Kelly Gallery at Sean Kelly NY on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Cheers! Thank you.